welcome to Pod Academy. My name is Isabella Grotto. Earlier this year, the EU issued a report on violence against women which made headlines in the UK and beyond. Based on interviews with over 40,000 women across 28 EU member states, it revealed that one in three women had reportedly experienced some form of physical or sexual abuse since the age of 15. I talked to Betsy Stanko, Honorary Professor of Criminology at Royal Holloway University, at her home in South London. I think what's important about the recent EU study is that it's one has some comparative data but also what we find in that study is it seems like the countries where the conversation about violence against women is the most advanced that is they talk about it as something which is common in their lives they actually have the highest numbers of reports of violence against women so Sweden has high figures in this study. The UK has high figures, and I think that has something to do with enabling women to name what experience they have had better than women in other countries where they still think it's just something that women endure and it's just part of their lives and it's not an unusual thing to be named. What we're saying is it's common, but it's also something that we don't want. As early as the 1990s, Betsy's research focused on investigating the issue of violence against women from an economic perspective. In particular, it sought to analyse the cost to society of these crimes. I did my first walk up Fifth Avenue in 1971. Um, And I started a refuge for battered women in 1978. Um, I've done lots of work around rape and sexual violence as well. And I think that we, we as, as feminist researchers, spent a lot of time trying to quantify how much violence against women there was, a lot of work on naming it and changing the concept and moving it from that's just what it's like to be a woman to we would like to be able to not have this in our lives. And by the 90s, the kind of debates around, it was always a debate about how much, you know, how prevalent. And To me, I thought, well, prevalence is one thing, but actually it's a hidden cost. Not only the consequences in terms of how you bear that cost, that is individually as a woman, you bear that cost. But I was trying to move the argument from it's an individual problem to it's a societal problem because the consequences are actually very costly, particularly in a welfare state. Now, not only has that been borne out over time, but it actually is around thinking about troubled, you know, there's different discourses now in terms of thinking about the issues. But even in a troubled family discourse, that is, what are the kinds of families that draw most on the public purse? What you find in those families are high levels of violence, high levels of violence against women, and high levels of violence against children. And I I wanted to elevate it out of, it's only feminists saying this, to uh, this is actually a, a wider societal issue which everybody really needs to take seriously and to move government policy on from debating the feminist to debating a better society. What were the costs that you encountered as typical in this research? Well, if you try to look at the costs in terms of the public purse in the first instance, you look at policing, courts, uh, cost of injunctions, so civil courts, you look at health, um, GPs, emergency rooms, psychological services, mental health issues, 
homicide, disruption of schooling. So if you look at schooling as well, people don't do as well. There's all kinds of public costs. If you do something specific to reduce domestic violence, then you are actually trying to reduce the costs for all of us. And I think that's, it's, it's so important because we couldn't get people to take the issue seriously. It was, it was because it was almost siloed into only feminists are concerned about this. We had to move it from only feminists are concerned about this to everybody. So what exactly are these costs? I visited Diana Nami, director of campaign and sport organization ICRA, which works to promote the rights of women from Afghanistan and the Middle East, including in the counteraction of so-called honor violence. I asked Diana which she thinks are the most significant financial costs of violence against women, and she gave the example of the case of Banaz Mahmood. Banaz, a 20-year-old British Kurdish woman living in South London, was murdered in 2006 on the orders of her uncle and father as punishment for her relationship with a man not sanctioned by the family. Banaz's family tried to erase her because they thought she'd brought them dishonour. Diana Nami. First of all, I have to say that the biggest uh, cost is investigating a murder, murder case. I think uh, if we compare it in Bernard's case, for example, uh, when she was uh, killed, then uh, government spent millions of pounds, or I don't know how much exactly, but I know that for sure it was huge money and lots of people were into, you know, involved uh, to investigate the case and uh, uh, to pay for the trial and for, I don't know, judges and the whole system. It took more than a year. Still, her case is not closed because still just recently another perpetrator of her, her case was uh, uh, has been charged. So I think this is the highest cost for government, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous for two reasons. First of all, if we save them, so they are alive, we save the life, which is extremely valuable, is the most important. Secondly, if those people are alive and not dead, tomorrow they are working, they pay tax, they will contribute to the society. Okay, when they are killed, they cannot do any of that. She has been killed, but in the other hand, the government has to pay for investigation, for the solicitor, for for everything, plus pay for life sentences of perpetrators, which in Bernard's case is more than six people now. The impact of violence against women, I think, stacks differently on different women, and some women get it hard. They're just, it's so much harder because they have other barriers and exclusions that they have to manage. And when you have all of that happening at the same time, I think it's it's there are some women that it's harder for. And I think perhaps that's the debate that the feminists had in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, which was talking about violence against women could happen to anybody. That's true. But I think it falls much more heavily on some than others. Sarah Brown is Equal Campaigns Officer. She points to the specific issues facing women in minority communities. If the government are hands off and this kind of violence is allowed to happen, that's incredibly damaging on, on many levels, not just to individuals, but to the community and community relations within the UK. And for us to live in a multicultural, positive society, we need to 
really address the negative issues and, and not allow them to continue and foster um, because I think the damage is huge. Yeah. If we spend money in uh, raising awareness within the community, making sure that crime is reduced, making sure that people are happy and healthy within the community, and ensure that we really developing and helping our young people to have a positive contribution to the society, uh, the whole society as British, not just Kurdish or Pakistani or Afghanistani. It will, you know, help to develop and progress of the whole community, the whole society. In light of this analysis, I asked Betsy if she believes women's organisations still have an important role to play. I think there's always a case for women's rights organisations, mm-hmm. um, and especially in countries where I think the conversation is more mature than others, only because it's still violence against women is one of the major problems for women everywhere in the world. And to have people whose job it is is to think differently about an age-old problem is really important. Um, and then I'd go on to add to that that it's really, really important that specialist organisations like Micro do get funding, funding. F- proper funding, um, because as we've been discussing, you know, the value for money is, is huge. Um, and I think it's really dangerous to cut away, as is happening, um, organisations like ours because it takes a level of work to get them going and get them properly operational. Um, and it's kind of naive to assume that if you just cut everything away, then... Um, I mean, people do go on. We do do th- a lot of things without any funding. We do, um, but, you know, it's it's short-sighted because the knock-on implications for all those women who don't get support, all their children and so on, you're creating more vulnerability and, and vulnerability leads to costs. I think that the, the reason why it's important is because women who have different characteristics experience violence differently. So sometimes it's a really big part of their life, almost you know overwhelming daily event. And sometimes it's smaller, but it's also cultural as well. And to get the language of support services around cultures where they might not recognize violence or it has been saturated by their lives then it's really important for almost the people who support um, those in those situations know that actually almost every facet of the kind of support they need to get is, has to do with impact of violence. And that's why it's, it's really, really important because the way silence works might be a bit different, you know, whether you tell somebody or not, whether you're expected to put up with it um, and because it's part of your life is different, whether it affects your ability to go to school or practice of faith, all of those things. You know, can you actually tell a priest or a rabbi or a mullah or whatever um, what's going on? But is there a danger this kind of analysis might serve to somehow depersonalize the issue of violence against women? If somehow you tout up pounds and pence, that somehow that is diminishing the experience of violence, I... It's just another way of expressing the burden. And I also think that people do think differently when they realize it costs you money. I mean, it's, again, moving it into the center of a a governmental debate as opposed to the periphery, because if it's the center of the debate, then actually it is about core funding. It isn't a luxury to do work on violence against women. And I think that's been borne out, reducing domestic violence and its impact on children. 
is a core offering. It's not a peripheral offering. If you want a healthy society, that you want your children to grow up in a way that's the the healthiest possible, both mentally healthy and physically healthy, then we know that the the best way of doing that is to mitigate against woman abuse, for example. So the the best um, fight against child abuse is a fight against domestic violence. It just makes perfect sense. And actually, that's what the evidence suggests. To me, it's the economics are, if you can mitigate against violence against women, starting at the most earliest interventions possible, then actually it makes much more sense economically to do that. Because it is a public purse. The burden of managing the violence really is part of our tax base. And that's the important thing that we were trying to say 20-something years ago, that if you think about this as something we all have to pay for, whether you like a conversation about violence against women or not, it doesn't matter. It's not about liking it. It's not about being a feminist. It's about actually having a better, more healthy society. We get in Money, 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 If you were to take a look at how many people in prison have experienced violence, how many people grew up in domestic violence, how many men who are in prison grew up in situations of domestic violence, how many women in prison have experienced domestic violence, it's hugely high. So if you start looking at special populations who need additional and take such um, higher resources from the public purse... It's just, it just makes perfect sense to me why you would use that as an, as an economic argument. Even if you don't care about prisoners, right? You would want to make sure that everybody was getting the maximum benefit out of their tax pound as possible, particularly in times of recession and economic stress. Money, 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 money. So with all this talk of austerity... Is this analysis still capable of shaping government policy? I think it's now become a part of the debate. It is, it is something that is now understood. It's, it's the kinds of things that kind of almost routinely get footnoted and noted as... I think it is just part of the way that a case is made now. It's not unusual, again, because we're still in a position where public service expenditure is something that's important. In order to maximize well-being, you have to then think about putting more resources into the places that need it the most. So what are the policy implications? I think early intervention is the next big step. And the other part is those who have experienced the worst, and then I'd suggest that we think very differently about our prison population as well, and those who are chronically ill. So I would then you know, focus universal service in schools and some very specialized services for those who are already demonstrated how much more need they have. I think the most important thing is that for governments really to not talking about the issues of political correctness and letting communities within the UK down because of their political agenda somewhere else. But this is important to think of the UK as one community rather than lots of separate communities. This is the first thing. The second thing I think a government needs to do, I know this is financial 
breakdown or problem or difficulties, but having legal aid is one of those very, very important money to be spent that allow lots of vulnerable people really to, to be entitled for their rights. I think government needs to really think twice about what they are doing with the legal aid. And, and this let many people down, including women from minority communities, especially they have no saving money, no money at all to pay for solicitors and for their divorce or things like that. So it will even force vulnerable people to stay in the vulnerable situation. It's short-sighted as well because it actually ends up costing so much mon- more money if you don't help people out. When you give people the right opportunity and do something efficiently um, and you then set them back on their feet again, actually you know, many of those women have gone on to have very successful careers and contribute and also you don't have all those knock-on effects of the children being vulnerable and having needs and so on, which all, all costs morally uh, as well as financially. So I think mm. there is a lot of short-sighted cuts the evidence is now so compelling that some universal approach is necessary. So I'm not sure government as a whole is addressing that issue, but that is where the evidence is now compelling that there should be early intervention. And so I do think that that's, the government needs to be reminded that that is where policy ought to be. They're not there yet.